Thanks for listening to Classics and Chill. I'm Justine Byrne, and I have a deep love for all things classical. I am welcoming in the new year, 2022. Um, And this year has brought with it some real imperatives to change in my life. Um, personally, maybe, but mostly uh, in conjunction with changing technologies and changes in the way that we organize ourselves here. Um, There's lots to think about. There's supply chain things to think about. There's, you know, there's, there's a real search for me for meaning in all of this because there seems to be a lot of randomness. And I have focused in my professional life since the beginning of this podcast on recruiting in data science and machine learning and AI. And this field has brought with it some of its own eye-opening concepts and peaks around the corner of technology futures and just changes in the way we process information with technology, with our minds, in conjunction with technology, which ultimately changes the way we process the very inner thoughts that we have in the silence as well. The whole structure is changing. Structures are falling away in a way and being created even more rigidly in other ways. And so it's been a really interesting time. And so my commitment lately from my own personal reading is to find those places in classical literature that would illuminate the path forward for us. I don't want to forget our special past, specifically in the Western academic tradition, but I think its usefulness has changed. I think I think 20 years ago when I was embarking upon my academic journey into college, there was value in studying and understanding the past as one would look at artifacts for the knowledge of what the past was. And I think now that we must honor the past, but only have the time and capacity to absorb that which helps build the future because the future is really building itself very quickly so for example while it's interesting to i recently read oscar wilde's de profundis which is a beautiful piece of literature and filled with single line pieces of insight about the human experience. But that's an interesting piece of an historic moment. And much like a baseball card loses value as NFTs become the norm, those types of historical pieces of literature have a valued and treasured place, and yet their usefulness is is less pertinent 
even than it was two or three years ago. So my commitment, all this is to say, is to choose those works of classical literature that will help us to build the future that we are building. And all of this is a long-winded introduction to why we are revisiting Wittgenstein. <laughs> so why we will be reading the tractat Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, which what? Um the treatise or the treatment of logic and philosophy. Because really the the future's being built on, on logic and, and the notions of linguistics and language processing. And really Wittgenstein's notion of ideas having these less rigid boundaries. We're gonna have to I have to reread this, that's why we're doing this. Um these ideas are really applicable in side of machine learning and AI. So we are starting the year off with Wittgenstein and it shall be interesting. So without further ado, I am going to work hard to find something that's not fully in German. Oh, I see it's alternate pages. Ah, well, this will make for a very cumbersome podcast. As you know, when I read these, I'm just reading them through for the first time in many years. So without further ado, the Tractatus Logico-Politico- Ah! See, I did it again. Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. And I constantly think of the Theological-Political Treatise, which is Spinoza's great work, so I smush the, length, the, the names together. So, without further ado, I bring you the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. Tractatus Logico Philosophicus by Ludwig Wittgenstein. Preface This book will perhaps only be understood by those who have themselves already thought the thoughts which are expressed in it, or similar thoughts. It is therefore not a textbook. Its object would be attained if there were one person who read it with understanding and to whom it afforded pleasure. The book deals with the problems of philosophy and shows, as I believe, that the method of formulating these problems rests on a misunderstanding of the logic of our language. Its whole meaning could be summed up somewhat as follows. What can be said at all can be said clearly, and whereof one cannot speak thereof one must be silent. Let's take that core axiom that he says sums up his thesis one more time. What can be said at all can be said clearly, and whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. So you can't say anything clear, don't say anything at all. It's like a, a new twist on the old schoolyard 
idiom. The book will, therefore, draw a limit to thinking, or rather, not to thinking, but to the expression of thoughts. For in order to draw a limit to thinking, we should have to be able to think both sides of this limit. We should therefore have to be able to think what cannot be thought. The limit can therefore only be drawn in language, and what lies on the other side of the limit will be simply nonsense. How far my efforts agree with those of other philosophers, I will not decide. Indeed, what I have written here makes no claim to novelty in points of detail, and therefore I can give no sources, because it is indifferent to me whether what I have thought has already been thought before me by another. I will only mention that to the great works of Frege and the writings of my friend Bertrand Russell, I owe in large measure the stimulation of my thoughts. Who's Frege? Let's find out. Let's find out, Google. I wish it was Fergie. Oh, Gottlob Frege. Frege? He's German. Also a Ludwig, Frederick Ludwig Gottlob Frege was a German philosopher and mathematician. Now we'll have to learn about him. All this is to say he was an influence on this particular piece of work. Okay, wait, let's go back. If this work has value, it consists in two things. First, that in it, thoughts are expressed. And this value will be the greater and the better the thoughts are expressed. The more the nail has been hit on the head, here I am conscious that I have fallen far short of the possible simply because my powers are insufficient to cope with the task. May others come and do it better. On the other hand, the truth of these thoughts communicated here seems to me unassailable and definite. No, unassailable and definitive. That's actually different. I am, therefore, of the opinion that the problems have, in essentials, finally been solved. And if I am not mistaken in this, then the value of this work secondly consists in the fact that it shows how little has been done when these problems have been solved. And that is the preface to the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. Well, because my memory is a cruel cruel mistress <laughs> the first page of this book is the premises that are numbered making it a very difficult piece of work to share through this medium but we'll do our best um, looks like there's going to be a number of proofs and these premises are that which we are to take as fact um, if you go back to Spinoza's ethics he also does this you start with your premises and then you the book is about the deduction of, of truth from premises that are already considered true a priori um, it's difficult to start a book with a priori truths when you are trying to prove the function of language in discerning and describing a priori truths. So I think he's asking for a little bit of a flyer this early. All this is to say, let's get started. 
with the logical premises at the beginning of the Tractatus Logico. Obviously, it's the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. So, of course, it's set up as a logical argument now that I think about the name. Um, I apologize for the difficulty this has wrought upon us, but let's read the premises. Premise one, the world is everything that is the case. 1.1, the world is the totality of facts, not of things. 1.11, the world is determined by facts, and by these being all the facts. 1.12, for the totality of facts determines both what is the cause. Co- 1.12. For the totality of facts determines both what is the case and also that is not the case. The German translations can get tricky, but totality of facts determines both what is the case and also what is not the case. The facts in logical space, oh, 1.13, the facts in logical space are the world. That is really important. This is a key, 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 um, key theorem um, as we start talking about augmented realities, that worlds or, or, or reality or what is the old philosophical what is with a capital what um facts thoughts axioms existing in space is what we experience the world divides into facts is 1.2 1.21 Anyone can either be the case or not be the case, and everything else will remain the same. Two, what is the case? The fact is the existence of atomic facts. An atomic fact is the combination of objects, entities, or things. It is essential to a thing that it can be a constituent part of an atomic fact. In logic, nothing is accidental. If a thing can occur in an atomic fact, the possibility of that atomic fact must already be prejudged in the thing. What? Think about that. Think about this man wrote before any type of like progression analysis or probability use cases in data science, right? So like um, the possibility of that atomic fact and an atomic fact is a combination of objects the possibility of a combination of objects existing must already be prejudged in the thing our very definitions improve in include the probability of the likelihood of being it would so to speak appear as an accident when to a thing that could exist alone on its own account subsequently a state of affairs could be made to fit If things can occur in atomic facts, this possibility must already lie in them. 
Girl, we're still going. A logical entity cannot be merely possible. Logic treats of every possibility and all possibilities are facts. Just as we cannot think of spatial objects at all apart from space or temporal objects apart from time, so we cannot think of any object apart from the possibility of its connection with other things. If I cannot think of an object in the context of an atomic fact, I cannot think of it apart from the possibility of this context. We're gonna learn today. The thing is independent insofar as it can occur in all possible circumstances, but this form of independence is a form of connection with the atomic fact, object or thing, a form of dependence. It is impossible for words to occur in two different ways, alone and in the proposition. Let's take that one again. The thing is independent insofar as it can occur in all possible circumstances. Aha. So if my, oh, let's not use my because people are probably really confusing. If an object can exist in all possible circumstances as an atomic fact, it is not dependent on the existence of any other object or any other fact being true or logical for its existence, then in this case it is independent. I have a feeling we will end up with very few independent atomic facts. If I know an object, then I also know all the possibilities of its occurrence in atomic facts. So this is like really interesting because this is the real thing that starts in the 17th century. And it's this like form or ideal of quote, perfect knowledge, that like perfect knowledge of um, an object or a concept really means knowing where that object will be placed in space-time through eternity, which means we can know its interactions with all other things, and we can know how it will respond to different stimuli, and that is, like, interesting, but I also think it's an ideal to which data science and machine learning often, often strive, this notion that if we just gather enough data, we can predictably tell the future. Um, it makes knowledge, it's a very, very heavy, um, burden on knowledge and the uses of knowledge and I don't know that it is even like this definition that to know something is to know every such possibility that must lie in the nature of the object I don't know that this like phil philosophers are hung up on this definition of knowledge this is how we end up with a priori truths is this the best way to define knowledge is this what knowledge means? Is, this, is that what perfect knowledge means? Because, you know, one of my favorite, and now I'm just like on a, like a bender on this axiom, but whatever, here we go, going down the rabbit hole. Um, one of my favorite examples is the gods. There's an example of if, and this example is to show the difference between like prediction and free will. Like, so I throw, and this this is usually used in defense of the existence of God, but like, let's just leave that aside. I throw my keys to my friend and he grabs them. He catches them out of the air. When I threw them, I, he had the free will whether or not to catch them, but I took a, I knew he would catch them out of instinct or reflex, right? So in that instance, I knew my,
the knowledge that I had was able to predict his response. But, you know, any number of things could have happened that he didn't catch the keys and one of them could have been um, an earthquake and that doesn't have anything to do with my knowledge of him, right? So like, I just feel, it's a feeling, feelings aren't facts, that this axiom, if I know an object, then I also know all the possibilities of its occurrence and atomic facts. Every such possibility must lie in the nature of the object. A new possibility cannot subsequently be found. Places such a burden on knowledge. And, you know, we have a lot of people graduating from Carnegie Mellon with this definition of what perfect knowledge is. And I don't know. I don't know. That's my opinion. Let's keep going. In order to know an object, I must know not its external, but all of its internal qualities. If all objects... ...are given, then thereby all possible atomic facts are also given. Everything is, as it were, in a space of possible atomic facts. I cannot think of this space as empty, but... I'm sorry. Everything is, as it were, in a space of possible atomic facts. I can think of the space as empty, but not of the thing without the space. Okay, so if anything exists, then it exists in this, like, alphabet soup of atomic facts, right? And if, if, if I think of it, I, I can think of there being no things, but the minute I think of a thing, I must, it must exist in this alphabet soup that I've just called it. A spatial object must lie in infinite space. A point in space is a place for an argument. A speck in a visual field need not be red, but it must have a color. It has, so to speak, a color space round it. A tone must have a pitch, an object of the sense of touch, a hardness, etc. So we cannot think of a visual object without giving it color or at least some gradation of color. Uh, we can't think of a music without thinking of a certain note and that note existing on the spectrum of all possible notes. We can't think of anything to touch without a sense of hardness or fuzziness. I would prefer fuzziness, which is probably on the spectrum of all things hard. Okay. Objects contain the possibility of all states of affairs. The possibility of its occurrence in atomic facts is the form of the object. Why does this sound like some PhD candidate trying to chat you up at the bar? Like, all possibilities are present in this moment. All right, buddy, like, just leave me alone. I'm drinking my Malbec. Okay. Where are we at? It would, so to speak, appear as an accident. Wait, I'm having a scrolling issue. It would, so to speak, appear as an accident when to a thing that could exist alone in its own account, subsequently a state of affairs could be made to fit. If things can occur in atomic facts, it's, this possibility must already lie in them. logical entity cannot be, be merely possible. Logic treats of every possibility and all possibilities 
objects form the substance of the world, therefore they cannot be compound. If the world had no substance, then whether a proposition had sense would depend on whether another proposition was true. I hate when they use was in the perfect sense. It would then be impossible to form a picture of the world, true or false. It is clear that however different from the real one an imagined world may be, it must have something, a form, in common with the real world. There we are. There's your augmented reality. This fixed form consists of the objects. The substance of the world can only determine a form and not any material properties, for these are first presented by the propositions, first formed by the configuration of the objects. Roughly speaking, objects are colorless. Two objects of the same logical form are, apart from their external properties, only differentiated from one another in that they are different. That's really important. That's really important because that ends up being a relational quality and it ends up really messing with the logic, if I can remember correctly. So two objects of the same logical form are, apart from their external properties, only differentiated from one another in that they are different. So now we've got internal and external properties to keep track of. Either a thing has properties which no other has, and then one can distinguish it straight away from the others by a description and refer to it, or on the other hand, there are several things which have the totality of their properties in common, and then it is quite impossible to point to any one of them. For if a thing is not distinguished by anything, I cannot distinguish it, for otherwise it would be distinguished. Substance is what exists independently of what is the case. Substance is what exists independently of what is the case. Wittgenstein would not get away with this definition of substance had he not been a scholar of the 17th century. And that's going to come to our substance attribute debate that's leading us directly back to Spinoza. Substance versus attribute. That which is versus that which is the case, essentially. It is form and content. Space, time, and color are forms of objects. If only if there are objects can there be a fixed form in the world. Only if the fixed, the existent, and the object are one. The object is the fixed, the existent. The configuration is the changing, the variable. That's external fact, yeah? external properties. The configuration of the object forms the atomic facts. So, oh, we're back to atomic facts again. If the atomic fact objects hang one in another like the members of a chain, in the atomic fact objects hang one on another like the members of a chain. In the atomic fact the objects are combined in a definite way. Premise 2.03 and 2.031, there's your blockchain. The way in which objects hang together in the atomic fact is the structure of the atomic fact. The form is the possibility of the structure. 
The structure of the facts consists of the structures of the atomic facts. The totality of existent atomic facts is the world. That is your blockchain. That is your duplicatable blockchain. Only distinguishable by the fact that they are different. I hope you guys can tell which vacant scene and what's me. Which vacant scene is the part that's really smart, and what's me is the part that's just trying to deal with it.、Um, the existence and non-existence of atomic facts is the reality. The existence. Hold up! Hold up! The totality of existent atomic facts is the world. Look at that. The existence and non-existence of atomic facts is the reality. The existence of atomic facts we also call a positive fact, and their non-existence a negative fact. Atomic facts are independent of one another, which means their existence can exist in all probabilities without reference to another atomic fact. The total reality is the world. Okay. We make to ourselves pictures of facts. Let's stop. That's、uh, that's epistemology. We make to ourselves pictures of facts. So facts are independent existences and non-existences of objects inside of a system, and we make pictures of those. The picture presents the facts in logical space, the existence and the non-existence of atomic facts. The picture is a model of reality. To the objects correspond in the picture the elements of the picture. That is German diction. So let's break that down. The elements of the picture correspond to the objects in the picture. Done. That makes sense because the picture is a model of reality. The elements of the picture stand in it. The picture for the objects. The picture consists in the fact that its elements are combined with one another in a definite way. The picture is a fact. That the elements of the picture are combined with one another in a definite way represents that the things are so combined with one another.、Hmm? This connection of the elements of the picture is called its structure, and the possibility of the structure is called the form of representation of the picture. The possibility of the structure of a picture, which, which is a representation of objects contained in an atomic fact inside of the mind, the form of representation is the possibility that the things are combined with one another, as are the elements of the picture. The essence of that representation is the possibility that it corresponds with what is the case. Thus, the picture is linked with reality. It reaches up to it. It is like a scale applied to reality. Only the outermost points of the dividing lines touch the object to be measured.
according to this view, the representing relation which makes it a picture also belongs to the picture. The representing relation consists of the coordination of the elements of the picture and the things. These coordinations are, as it were, the feelers of its elements with which the picture touches reality. In order to be a picture, a fact must have something in common with what it pictures. In the picture, the picture there must be something identical in order that the one can be a picture of the other at all. What the picture must have in common with reality in order to be able to represent it after this manner, rightly or falsely, is its form of representation. The picture can represent every reality whose form it has the spatial picture, everything spatial, the colored, everything colored, etc. The picture, however, cannot represent its form of representation. It shows it for us. The picture represents its object from without. Its standpoint is its form of representation. Therefore, the picture represents its object rightly or falsely. But the picture cannot place itself outside of its form of representation. What every picture or whatever form must have in common with reality in order to make, in order to be able to represent it at all, rightly or falsely, is the logical form, that is, the form of reality. If the form of representation is a logical form, then the picture is called a logical picture. Every picture is also a logical picture. On the other hand, for example, not every picture is spatial. A logical picture can depict the world. Picture has logical form of representation in common with what it pictures. The picture depicts reality by representing a possibility of the existence and non-existence of atomic fact. The picture represents a possible state of affairs in logical space. The picture consists the possibility of the state of affairs which it represents. The picture agrees with reality or not, it is right or wrong true or false. The picture represents what it represents independently of its truth or falsehood through the form of representation. What the picture represents is its sense. In the agreement or disagreement of its sense with reality, its truth or falsity consists. In order to discover whether the picture is true or false, we must compare it with reality. It cannot be discovered from the picture alone whether it is true or false. There's no picture which is a priori true. The logical picture of the facts is the thought. An atomic fact is thinkable means we can imagine it. The totality of true thoughts is a picture of the world. The thought contains the possibility of the state of affairs which it thinks. What is thinkable is also possible. We cannot think anything unlogical for otherwise we should have to think unlogically. It used to be said that God could create everything except what was contrary to the laws of logic. The truth is we could not say of an unlogical world how it would look. To present in language anything which contradicts logic is as impossible as in geometry to represent coordinates of a figure which contradicts the laws of space or to give it coordinates of a point which does not exist. We could present spatially an atomic fact which contradicted all the laws of physics, but not one which contradicted the laws of geometry. An a priori truth thought would be one whose possibilities guaranteed its truth. 
We could only know a priori that a thought is true if its truth was to be recognized from the thought itself without an object of comparison. In the proposition, the thought is expressed perceptively through the senses. We use the sensibly perceptible sign, sound, or written sign, etc., of the proposition as a projection of the possible state of affairs. The method of projection is the thinking of the sense of the proposition. The sign through which we express the thought I call the propositional sign, and the proposition is the propositional sign in its projective relation to the world. To the proposition belongs everything which belongs to the projection, but not what is projected. Therefore, the possibility of what is projected, but not this itself. In the proposition, therefore, its sense is not yet contained, but the possibility of expressing it. The content of the proposition means the content of the significant proposition. In the proposition, the form of its sense is contained, but not its content. The propositional sign consists in the fact that its elements, the words, are combined in a definite way. The propositional sign is a fact. The proposition is not a mixture of words, just as the musical theme is not a mixture of tones. The proposition is articulate. Only facts can express a sense. A class of names cannot. That the propositional sign is a fact concealed by the ordinary form of expression, written or printed. For in the printed proposition, for example, the sign of proposition does not appear essentially different from a word. Thus, it was possible for Frege to call the proposition a compounded name. The essential nature of propositional signs becomes very clear when we imagine it made up of spatial objects such as tables, chairs, and books instead of written signs. The mutual spatial proposition, <clears throat> the mutual spatial position, I said proposition so many times, the mutual spatial position of these things then expresses the sense of the proposition. The mutual position in space of things and expresses the sense of the proposition, which is the possibility of the projection of the okay, what is the case, the atomic fact. We must not say a complex sign says A stands in relation to B, but we must say that A stands in certain relation to B. States of affairs can be described but not named. Names resemble points. Propositions resemble arrows. They have sense. In propositions, thoughts can be... That's a really important thing, actually. Names resemble points. Propositions resemble arrows. They have sense. So, I... I like the notion of rigid, rigid designators. Um, a name is a point in space. It rigidly designates that thing that exists in space-time under those circumstances. Um, but I feel like he disproves that later, you know, I guess we'll find out together. In propositions, thoughts can be so expressed that to the object of thoughts correspond the elements of propositional signs. These elements I call simple signs and the proposition completely analyzed. The simple signs employed in propositions are called names. The name means the object. The object is its meaning. A is the same sign as A. The name is the object. The object is the meaning of the name. The definition of a name is the object that it to which it refers. 
My family calls me J7. There's only one. And I'm her. I am she. Um, The definition of J7 is me sitting here in Highland Lakes making a podcast that no one listens to. (laughs) That's that's the name the object is the meaning of the name to the configuration of the simple signs and the propositional sign corresponds to the configuration of the object in the state of affairs propositional sign is a collection of simple signs they are configured the same way the objects are in what is the case in the proposition the name represents the object object I can only name. Signs represent them. I can only speak of them. I cannot assert them. A proposition can only say how a thing is, not what it is. That's important. That somehow will lead into how we model data, I think. A proposition can only say how a thing is, not what it is. The postulate of the possibility of the simple signs is the postulate of the determinateness of the sense. A proposition about a complex stands in internal relation to the proposition about its constituent parts. The complex can only be given by its description, and this will either be right or wrong. The proposition in which there is mention of a complex, if this does not exist, becomes not nonsense but completely fake. The propositional element signifies a complex can be seen from an indeterminateness in the proposition in which it occurs. We know that everything is not yet determined by this proposition. The notation for generally contains prototypes. The combination of the symbols of a complex in a simple symbol can be expressed by a definition. There is one and only one complete analysis of a proposition. The proposition expresses what it expresses in a definite and clearly specifiable way. The proposition is articulate. A name cannot be analyzed further by any definition. It is a primitive sign. Every defined sign signifies via those signs by which it is defined and the definitions show the way. Two signs, one a primitive sign and one defined by primitive signs, cannot signify in the same way. Names cannot be taken to pieces by definition, nor any sign which alone and independently has a meaning. What does not get exposed in the sign is shown by its application. What the signs conceal, their application declares. That sounds confusing. What does not get expressed in the sign is shown by its application. So when you apply the sign to what is the case, what's not expressed in it is evident. What it is not is evident. And it conceals. Oh, what it conceals, the application declares. It's actually a way of saying the same thing twice. By expressing a sign, you must then know what it does not include. Okay. The meanings of primitive signs can be explained by elucidations. Here we go, a new word. Elucidations are propositions which contain the primitive signs. 
They can, therefore, only be understood when the meaning of these signs are already known. Only the proposition has sense. Only in the context of a proposition has a meaning meaning. I think we should stop there, folks. That's a half hour of what? Just straight up logic. Logical definitions. These are all premises. These are premises which build upon the definitions in the beginning. We've got elucidations. We've got names and signs and propositions and atomic facts and complexes. And maybe we've got to listen to this a few more times. But I will start us off at premise 3.3 for the next recording of this podcast, which may be soon and maybe never. So thanks for listening to Classics and Chill. We did the first 11 pages of premises in the Tractatus Logical Philosophicus, and we are in the dark here, but not forever. See you next time.